X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon, and it's Friday, April 23rd. The Local is brought to you by X-Ray FM. X-Ray is needed now more than ever. As we come out of one of the hardest years of our lives, X-Ray has the information you need and the music you love to help us get through this time together. Being member supported means we rely on our community to stand up and support this resource. So please call in now to become a part of ours at 503-233-X-Ray. That's 503-233-9729 or go online at xray.fm and click the blue donate button. We can't do this without you. And we don't want to. X-Ray. Today, back in the day, on April 23rd, 1873, the steamship, the Daisy Ainsworth, was first launched from the Dalles by the Oregon Steam Navigation Company. It was named after Captain John C. Ainsworth's youngest daughter. The Daisy Ainsworth was 204 feet long and 28 feet wide, with paddle wheels measuring 21 feet in diameter. It was considered the finest steamship of the era, in the Pacific Northwest. The Daisy Ainsworth worked the Columbia River between Astoria and the Cascade Locks for over three years until November 22, 1876, when she struck a sunken reef or rock a very short distance above the upper landing at the Cascades, and she sank, as reported by the Oregonian the following day. Today, back in the day, on April 23, 1951, 16-year-old black high school student Barbara Johns led a student walkout in protest of the subpar conditions at the racially segregated Robert Russa Moton High School in Prince Edward County, Virginia. Along with several classmates, Ms. Johns organized her entire student body by luring the principal off campus and calling an assembly of all 450 of her classmates in the auditorium. Upon their arrival, the teachers were ushered out, and Barbara convinced the student body to organize outside of the school buildings until construction of a new school began. This student protest led to a court case that would go on to be one of the five included in Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka when it declared student segregation unconstitutional. On today's episode, we'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with award-winning storyteller Robin Maxey. X-ray. First up, it's time for today's quick six local rundown. A big thanks to our lead writer for today's news, Nebraska Lucas. More details have surfaced surrounding Brad DeWitt's harassment of a colleague. On Friday, Oregon Live first reported that Representative Brad DeWitt of Klatskanai had been accused of sexual misconduct. More details have surfaced surrounding Brad DeWitt's harassment of a colleague. On Friday, Oregon Live first reported that Representative Brad DeWitt of Klatskanai had been accused of sexual misconduct. Now the colleague who accused him, Representative Vicki Brees Iverson, is sharing more information on what happened. According to Brees Iverson, she had reached out to DeWitt through text to gain his support on a bill. She said DeWitt initially asked her a little about the bill before interjecting with questions about, quote, going out for a beer 
and going out for dinner. Brees Iverson tried to redirect the conversation back to the bill, but said that the final text she received from DeWitt was, quote, just unacceptable. She did not specify what was said in that message. On Monday, House Speaker Tina Kotek removed DeWitt as committee chair in response to the allegations. He is no longer able to attend virtual committee meetings either. Kotek also said she is in the process of setting up a meeting with the legislative equity officer who handles harassment claims. An independent investigation into the allegations should conclude by the end of April. It will then be up to the House Conduct Committee to determine if DeWitt should face consequences. In response to the investigation, DeWitt said he was certain, quote, 101 percent, that it will be found that there was no ill intent on my part whatsoever, but rather an attempt to further the committee interests. And now your daily dose of data. The Oregon Health Authority reported 993 new coronavirus cases yesterday. That brings the total number of cases in the state to 178,110. There was one new death. The death toll is now up to 2,467. On April 20th, the OHA became aware of an Oregon resident who died after receiving the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. The resident was a woman in her 50s who developed rare but serious blood clots following the dose. It was also noted that she had low blood platelets at the time. This is now the seventh woman who has died following the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Until the OHA concludes its investigation, they will not confirm if the vaccine was responsible for her death. But the symptoms she developed prior are congruent with how the other six women responded. According to the OHA, they first became aware of the death through the CDC. The OHA and CDC say they will work together to investigate the official cause of death. Oregon State employees become fearful of fraudsters after multiple instances of identity theft are reported. On Thursday, Oregon Live reported that fraudsters are targeting state employees and using their names to file unemployment claims. Oregon has seen a considerable increase in identity theft within the last year. But this appears to be the first time that fraudsters have targeted multiple state employees. According to Leah Andrews, a spokesperson for the Department of Consumer and Business Services, quote, it's almost like someone's just randomly going through a list and seeing what they can do. The organization Andrews represents has had roughly 60 employees report that they were the victims of fraud. While the Bureau of Labor and Industries said 14% of its staff also had false claims submitted in their names. The identity thieves are reportedly following a specific pattern. They file unemployment claims in a state employee's name, but not with that employee's job title. Instead, they file as dishwashers or sales managers, which are both jobs most of these departments don't even have. And these thefts don't just harm state employees. They also muck up the system for people who are filing legitimate unemployment claims. Just last weekend, the Oregon Employment Department closed part of its online claim form amid concern of suspicious activity. That prevented 20,000 people from filing claims and delayed weekly benefits for an entire day. Governor Kate Brown and the OHA announced in a joint statement that indoor 
full contact sports will resume by the end of this week. The announcement prompted immediate criticism as Oregon is currently in the midst of an intense surge in COVID cases. Within the past month, cases in Oregon have increased by roughly 150%. Oregon now has a higher rate of new daily cases than the national average, and the number of people that are hospitalized in Oregon is nearly five times higher than the national average. Despite this surge, Governor Brown and the OHA defended their decision. They said that the resumption of indoor full-contact sports was important, quote, for the physical and mental health of Oregon's youth athletes. On Tuesday, the OHA also said that athletes will be expected to follow safety protocols, but could not specify what the protocol will be. Peter Weber, the executive director of the Oregon School Activities Association, or OSAA, understood the concern Oregonians have. On Wednesday, Weber said, quote, Certainly, anytime you open things up further, whether that's schools or whether it's activities or anything, the opportunity for potential cases is there. But we do believe that with the protocols in place, if they're followed by the schools, these things can be mitigated. Weber is waiting to hear from Governor Brown's office on what exactly these protocols will be. He said he hopes to hear back by Friday. A staff member in the North Bend School District has helped bring mental health resources to students. Lori Nordahl is a librarian at North Bend High School. After losing a student to suicide, she invested in a program called Cameron's Collection. The program is available through the site Gale and was originally created for college students. It offers 15 e-books that provide digital, social, and emotional learning guides. Cameron's collection can be accessed anywhere on any device. And it allows students to access the collection anonymously, which Nordahl says is its most important feature. Though record numbers of students struggle with mental health issues, roughly 75% refuse to seek help. Nordahl says she empathizes with this. Quote, if I wanted to read about depression or anxiety or any mental health type of issue, I would have been too shy to take a book with that context to the desk and check it out. At the start of the pandemic, Nordahl anticipated a rise in mental health issues among students. She pushed for Cameron's collection to be available at all the North Bend schools, and she succeeded. More recently, a series of other schools and districts have invested in the program, including the Sayusla School District, South Medford High School, Hermiston Middle and High Schools, Valor Middle School, and Woodburn High School. And finally, some good news. The Portland Moon Market is this weekend. The Portland Moon Market is designed to spotlight local businesses and artists. Over the course of the weekend, you can meet over 60 different business owners with products ranging from spirits and alcoholic beverages to skincare and candles to jewelry, photography, clothing, and home decor. There is no entry fee. However, $5 donations are encouraged. A portion of these proceeds will be donated to Raphael House of Portland. Raphael House of Portland is a women's shelter that educates communities on nonviolent living through advocacy, education, and outreach. Moon Market organizers say the market will only allow a certain number of people inside at one time to comply with physical distancing. Guests are required to wear masks as well. 
The market will begin at noon on Saturday and will conclude at 4 p.m. on Sunday. For location and registration details, please visit pdxmoonmarket.com. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Activist and storyteller Robin Maxey joins X-Ray to discuss a new unit within the Bureau of Indian Affairs focused on the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous people and systems change. The first Indigenous Secretary of the Interior recently announced the creation of a new unit within the Bureau of Indian Affairs. This unit will tackle the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous people, especially women. It's a crisis that has been ignored by the federal government for decades. Here to share her thoughts with us about this new unit and justice for missing Indigenous people is Robin Moxke. Moxke is an Indigenous technology activist, filmmaker, and writer, and joins us by Zoom. Robin, good morning. Good morning. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? So I'm, so I'm Stockbridge Mohican Muncie. I graduated from Diné College and Salish Kootenai College. Those are two tribal colleges. And my work growing up um, within the community, one of the things that you see is there's a lack of access and resources become a huge issue. And I, this is amplified in a lot of the issues that we face on a larger level. And so my work was specifically focused on getting communities in rural and marginal and underserved areas access to education, access to technology. Um, and personally, it allowed me to express a lot of what I felt and a lot of the issues that I saw in my community. And we see this amplified in a larger sense where this is how people outside of the res are becoming aware of this this massive crisis that mm-hmm. um, it's so interesting to me that so many people don't know about it. And it's, um, it's an epidemic. I mean, homicide is the third leading cause of death for Native women between mm-hmm. the ages of 10 to 24. And the numbers are actually probably higher. Mm-hmm. Um, but because statistics aren't actively kept on us, we're this invisible minority within the U.S. So so with this, with this new... Um uh, unit that that could tackle this crisis. How how can technology play a role in the the search for missing Indigenous people? Well, creating databases and also just uh, notating that this is going on because one of the ways that colonization has, has really hurt us is it's erased us. And because we don't have anything to point to, we do have things to point to, but they're not because they're not accepted in this Western way. Uh, they're almost, they're usually dismissed. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about missing and murdered Indigenous women, in fact, when I gave you the um, the statistic earlier, which was by the Urban Indian Health Institute, there's often this idea if it's not coming from a very like a very specific Western uh, place, it's like well. Is that really a valid resource? Uh, indigenous methodologies, indigenous resources are often not given the same weight, even though we're talking about our own communities. Mm-hmm. So technology is a way for us to gather this information. And keep in mind, Indian country, there's 574 federally recognized tribes in Alaskan villages in the U.S. alone. It's a very fractured system. Um, this allows us to communicate across because what's going on on one reservation may be affecting another reservation and technology sort of builds a bridge between that it's not the the the, the save all for all of this um yeah. but it does provide a base there 
where it's like we can point to it and say like well you can't argue with with this data that we've collected yeah what <laughs> it's uh, it's it's so interesting that that idea of in order to be heard uh, on this very personal issue, the the one of the ways to to be heard is to use you know cold, unemotional, um, just data and 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 technology that 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 uh, a a personal an emotional plea doesn't get heard until you can you know point to a, a an excel spreadsheet or or something to that uh, effect and 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 so I you know I wonder how how does a how does a community uh, wrestle with those those issues of 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 not being valued um, until something is you know in a database until something is listed you know what are what are the what uh, you know how does uh, how does a community come together around that i think this this is part of a larger issue of like when you look at historical trauma and you look at a lot of the issues that indigenous people are facing and still face because there's this idea that it, it this doesn't exist for us anymore. Like hmm. things are all good. And it's because people are not hearing about these injustices and it's like, well, are you not hearing about it? Or are we being actively oppressed continually? And up until 2012, when the violence against women act passed, that was one of the first pieces of legislation that even acknowledged that we were, were valid enough to be, to, uh, cared for when we went missing or it's mm-hmm. for people to look for us because prior to that um because of the, the way that politics work and the bureaucracy of reservations it creates the system of there's so many people that we're accountable for but nobody's accountable to us so when we're report when people go missing it's who, who do we report this to and then also who cares outside of the community and that creates this compounding effect and you see this within the youth you see this within where it, what sort of value do I have as an indigenous person? What sort of value do I have as an indigenous woman where if my sister or my mother, my friend goes missing and we're not valid enough to, not not even for people to look for us, but even for statistics to be kept on us. We're, we're, that we're, we're just not even people. Um, and there's a lot of indigenous researchers doing this specific work out there um and so i wouldn't i'm not going to pretend that i know the exact like psychological damage (laughs) but i think all of us um all of us can kind of you know realize when you see this pattern of just like you don't exist your people don't exist these problems don't exist that that's not gonna end well like that's not um but again you have incredible communities out there that are not only working to working against the these uh, oppression tactics that have u- been used against us since you know 1492 yeah but you have um now that secretary deb hanlon she's the first indigenous woman it, to 
you see what happens when somebody from the community is leading the interior because now they can address crises within the community. Um, yes. And it's a community that has been erased from the mainstream. And so to see this was incredible. And I also, um, I think it's important to, while this was passed on April 1st, it's a continuation of her work along with um, Tom Cole, who's Chickasaw, um, Mark Wayne Mullen, who's Cherokee, and Sharice Davids, who's Ho-Chunk, and they passed legislation for MMIW in September of last year. Um, and so this is all building off of that. But um, again, it's it's so interesting how when you put somebody from the community in a place, they can actually speak about the community. <laughs> well, and that 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 the importance of 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 representation of of having you know being able to to look to the people who are meant to be helping us and and seeing ourselves mirrored back. I think that's that's important. Um, um, uh, you're listening to Andy Lindbergh, X-ray in the morning. We're talking with Robin Moxkey about technology and uh, missing indigenous people. Uh, it seems like different tribes and communities will have different needs when it comes to addressing the crisis. Uh, how can the federal government and indigenous advocates make sure that this new unit isn't a one-size-fits-all solution? Well, that's where it's, it's important to remember that we're not a monolith. Um, I think sometimes people just have this idea of Indian country being like teepees and headdresses. And it's like, well, that's a very specific tribe and that's a very specific area. So it's important to have representation from each community. And I, working on certain projects, there's often this, when outsiders come in and they wanna work with a group and you tell them, well, we have to work, we have to ask this communities for their input and we have to ask this community. And they often seem sort of, discouraged because it's like well you know that's just a lot more work and it's like no this, this is the work this mm-hmm. is what you're actually supposed to be doing you can't assume that you know so unless the community is involved in something like it's there you're not doing something for the community the community has to be an active member for for it to be valid i believe um and that's where because you're right i mean there are very specific issues if you look at there's some reservations where there's still very limited access to electricity, to running water, there's still, then there's other communities. And then you all have some tribes that 150,000 members strong, and then some tribes where it's 600 members, 400 members. So the needs, the resources, all of these are gonna vary widely. So with with such a, a diversity of communities that are affected in some similar ways, what kinds of policies and services can help to prevent these tragedies in the first place? It's creating local tax force task forces. I think it's creating it's uh, very much community led and resources that go directly to the community and remembering that we're sovereign nations and that providing us those resources and then allowing us, to make the decisions of what's best for our community. Because oftentimes what you see is this passing legislation, this passing policy, Mm -hmm. these large grants that go out, but they're these blanket grants that are like, this is what you're going to do with this. No, allow the community 
to use the resources, uh, wh whether that's usually in, in this case, it would be grant money mm -hmm. that I'm specifically talking about, but allow the community to decide what is the most important thing to do with it, because that's how you create checks and balances, because the community itself, again, we're sovereign nations, tribes have tribal councils, there's a lot of checks that go into that. And I think anytime you have an outside organization, um, especially one coming from the US government deciding what's best for natives, um, that that's very sticky. And one of the, it's, it's kind of a bad joke, but one of the jokes about Indi like the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is sort of who we respond to on the res, um, we call it, we, it's, we call it the BIA and we also call it like bossing Indians around because it's, it was created <laughs> to tell us what to do in a sense. Yeah. Um, but now that Deb Hanlon is in charge of that, completely different perspective I have on it. Um, uh, but I, I think you'll you'll find that joke is still fairly valid in a well, lot of ways. I'm I'm a fan of gallows humor, so uh, that's that goes <laughs> that definitely goes along with it. Uh, we just have uh, about a, a minute left, and and I'm wondering what uh, ultimately. What does justice look like for missing and murdered indigenous people? What what do we get to if these policies work? That we're acknowledged as valid people that when we go missing or we go murdered, we're just as important as anyone else. Um, that this also isn't, we're the, not this overlooked group in the U.S. and that we get equal, equal representation. Um, I think this is it's so frustrating to have to plead to people that, um, Hey, we're human too. But the reality is like, we need, we need people to understand that we exist and we have very specific issues and the, that we're just as important, um, and valid. And if non-natives, um, often wonder how they can help, uh, you know, one of the things is consider what local resources are available for missing runaway and exploited indigenous youth. Um, and how can you create more resources or raise, awareness of existing resources that are within that community um, and amplify the voices of missing and murdered indigenous women um, and survivors in the families who are using hashtags you'll find on social media like MMIW or MMIWG or MMIWG2S. I don't want to get this wrong. Um, <laughs> yes. Well, so so uh, so uh, I, I want to give you the opportunity to, to repeat those hashtags again because um, as as we we uh, wrap up, I, I I would love to to give folks who may be at the beginning of their journey learning about uh, this issue. So you had mentioned a few hashtags that you could you could look for on social media to maybe learn more about what's going on. Can you repeat those for us? So there's MMIW. There's MMIWG, there's MMIWG2S, um, and then you have, sometimes you will see variations, further variations with P and, and stuff, and this is just including, trying to be as inclusive as possible. Um, there's often, if you want resources, Sovereign Bodies Institute does incredible work mm. on this. Um, there's also MMIW resources or MMIW resources dot C-A-R-R-D dot C-O. Um, there's so many. I mean, there isn't, when you look at Urban Indian Health Institute, they have a lot of the statistics. It depends what you're looking for. I think just starting somewhere, just starting at all, 
is a great way. It can be very overwhelming yeah. for outsiders to understand indigenous issues. And you're not wrong if you're just asking questions and beginning to care. I think it, you know, it becomes testy when you're expecting an indigenous person to give you all the answers and to know, <laughs> I, you know, I, personally, I can't speak for anyone but myself, let alone my tribe. Um, yeah. And it, that's the way that, you know, it is for everyone. Um, but there's, there's a lot of people out there that are leading this charge and doing incredible groundwork and have been keeping databases and um, it's amplifying that. And then also just giving indigenous people the mic to address their own issues. Um, giving them place to, uh, in that, that, that with to, uh, acknowledge that they know what's, it's better for their community than an outsider. Um, great. Thank you. Thank you. We've, we've been talking with, uh, Robin Moxke, uh, indigenous tech activist, filmmaker, and writer. Robin, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. I appreciate it. You Have a good day. It. You too. Thanks to Robin for joining The Local. And a special thanks to our production team, executive editor Will Romy, supporting editors and writers John Collier, Nebraska Lucas, Joey McClone, Brian Miller, Carlos Molina, Julia Oppenheimer, Carly Quadros, Miranda Selinger, writer Sherwood, and Sam Smargiazzi. Thanks for original journalism and research by the Lund Report, Oregon Health Authority, covid19.healthdata.org, the Oregon Historical Society, Portland Mercury, Portland Tribune, Portland Business Journal, KGW, The Willamette Week, COIN, Pamphlet Media, OPB, K2, The Oregonian, Statesman Journal, Bike, Portland, and our news partners, Portland Mercury, Street Roots, and Eater Portland. Thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in just about 30 minutes. And thank you, Democracy. We'll talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.